0: In a world of complex and overwhelming challenges, the Inspirational Insights Podcast provides a shift in perspective. Dive into the minds of brilliant thinkers, creatives, and edge-riding leaders who have adapted their thinking and leadership practices to match today's perplexing challenges. Your host, Donna Jones, leads captivating conversations with trailblazers from diverse fields who have transcended tough and complex conditions to contribute to a healthier world. Can we collectively break old habits to reinvent the human work earth relationship and support the vitality and diversity of all life? Harnessing agility, embracing
1: possibilities. Welcome to the journey. With me today is Jeffrey Beeson, and we're talking about what network science tells us about the future of organizations. This will be the eighth in the series on network science, interspersed throughout a whole bunch of other topics. The opportunity here is to understand that organizations are networks, and therefore they run on them, and you don't lead in networks by relying on your authority. There's a lot for leaders of any size organization to understand how these this works and the biological nature of it, for example. Jeffrey's career path inspired him to recognize the need to integrate these two perspectives of strategy and culture. He founded his Ensemble Enabler to collaborate with organizations and really develop the organizational values and advancing leadership. There's an intersection between those two, but it's that... Um, combination of the two that we're really looking and talking about today. So Jeffrey has also been able to shift perspective. So I have no idea where this conversation is going to go, but that's our intent, which is to look at what network science impacts, tells you about the future of organizations and beyond. The other two things I want you to know about Jeffrey is that he's also been involved in World Cafe Europe. And that's actually how I met Jeffrey, through Patricia Monroe, it's an an organization that looks at large group participatory dialogue to really talk about the issues of great importance. And we have plenty of those today. Jeffrey was a board member of the ILA, the International Leadership Association, who very kindly published one of my podcasts several years ago, one of my episodes, and just had their conference here in Vancouver, where I'm based. Okay, enough of that. On we go. Jeffrey, what do networks have to do with disruption in business and organizations that we witnessed over the last 20 plus years?
0: Well, there's a lot to talk about there, but I'm actually an economist by training. And one of the theories that's been around for quite a while is Schumpeter's creative destruction which was in the early 20th century. And he was looking at how economics works and what is going on there and and talked about how companies going down and, and being replaced by new companies was just part of the system. Those kind of disturbances that we've had in the past is nothing new. We've seen it before and we've seen it in many different phases of industrial change. Electricity was one of those examples in the early 20th century that changed the industrial landscape completely. There's something really different right now palpably different you can name all sorts of different examples but take a look at something like encyclopedia britannica a super established company that was founded in the 18th century that was the standard for knowledge in the world for that span of 200 plus years and all of a sudden a group of people say let's do an encyclopedia where everybody edits it where it's not just an editorial board. And uh, we'll just allow that to happen. We'll have just a few meetings together to understand and and, and improve the articles, but otherwise it's just open for anybody to put in whatever they want. This was anathema for people like the Britannica, which was scholarly work, really rigorous, uh, board that officially attributes everything. And it's been no contest. The latest statistics I've seen is that Wikipedia, which is the birth of that thought, has something like 100 times more visitors every day than Encyclopedia Britannica. And so we understand that there's really something different going on here. What is happening is that there are some very fundamental things that have changed. It's not that the forces are any different. They were always the same before. But what's happened is that the cost of connection has shifted in other words how much you have to pay to get connected that the cost to you has dramatically by orders of magnitude have gone down and so people can now get connected in, in without actually even having to, to pay a telephone bill which is is absolutely remarkable and then of course the amount of information flowing through networks in, in human networks has increased also by a hundred fold or more and is continuing to increase. So we have volume of information and we have uh, cost of connection. And those two things are making a humongous difference in the kind of disruption, the kind of creative destruction that we're witnessing. Like the example that I just gave, but there's numerous examples. You think about a software field and you have huge companies like Microsoft who have an army of software developers and they cannot keep up with people who on their spare time for free are creating linux systems the uh, 15,000 programmers worldwide on their spare time creating an operating system and this has been and this is the major operating system it was so successful that Microsoft after a decade Of trying to kill it finally had to declare peace and a truce and now says they love linux so that's the power of networks and it's a a remarkable thing to see and it's taken a lot of people by surprise they just don't know where things are coming from and what what's going to happen but actually there's a complete logic to it and it's the logic of networks so that's what we're witnessing in our age today
1: it's interesting because networks always run Almost unobserved, you you don't really notice them like you 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 appreciate that Linux was done by a group of people, but you don't think of that as a network. it's just a blob called a group of a group of developers, and you don't remember the interactions that, that go between them and the the other thing I noticed from what you just said is that these all these people are fired up by a goal. there's a purpose, a very strong, clear, intentional purpose behind their initiative, whatever that happens to be. right? Yeah. And I can recall when I was a participant in the Knowledge and Innovation Network, we talked about the work Hewlett Packard was doing at the time, social biology, network mapping. It was manual. It wasn't computer-based as it is now. But uh, so consequently, it was probably a bit slower. But it was certainly interesting. It was that understanding that uh, who I need in my network. And that often existed far outside the company to get the job done, to get a goal, a big goal that people are passionate about done. So that's the basis of networks for this conversation. Now, let's go a little bit further into looking at what are the key insights from network science that help explain what's going on, the the disruption that we're witnessing in the world today? Because there's a lot of it and there's a lot of people who are analytical who find it very difficult to zoom out and say, gee, what's really happening here? What have you observed? from network science that explains how things are shifting today. Yeah, that's the exciting part of it is
0: that uh, network science, it's been around for a long time, Uh, but it's only recently with the advent of of computers and the computing capacity that it's really taken off as a science. Um, I think that uh, most of the network scientists really think of the 1990s as the birth of the modern network sciences as, as it's constituted today. But it goes back actually to the 18th century and the famous Seven Bridges of Königsberg, which I won't say too much about, but but that's an interesting puzzle for those who who want to know and look at that. What's really interesting is that the network science is informing all sorts of things. It helps us to set up our telecommunication networks. It helps us to understand molecular biology. there's just all sorts of things that it's really helping to resolve. It is really, I would say, in the 20th century, we had two major scientific breakthroughs, relativity and quantum physics. And for most people, these were worlds that they they couldn't relate to. There's the very big and the very small. But the science of networks is about life. It's about our world. And it's really relevant. Barbasi, one of the leading exponents of network science, says this is the science of life and then in the science of the 21st century what it's showing is that all of these phenomena, and we can explain all sorts of things now we with networks that we weren't able to explain before for instance just like water freezing there's certain sort of examples like that that the network aspect of the way that life and molecules are interconnected Is now explainable through network science. So that's just that's a very broad overview here. But what it also is beginning to help us understand human systems, and organizations. The exciting part is that all of these changes, all of these disruptions that we're seeing, can be explained with this new science. And it's not very complicated, really. Of course, if you can make it super complicated if you want to (laughs) and go into into the detail. And I think that's what uh, drives people away from it a bit because. When you really get into it, then there's a lot of computation that's going on. But the principles are pretty pretty straightforward. I will reduce it down to three things. networks are basically different, what they call nodes, which are elements. in an organization, this might be just be people. And then there are connections that connect those people. And then the third element is that there are flows. There's things that go through and pass between the different elements. And that's true of any kind of network, whether it be in the physical world, natural world, or in organizations. But there are three basic principles that help to explain what's going on. You've got to look at how people are connected. That's the first principle, connection. You have to look at connections and the structure of connections because that tells you how things flow or could flow or what gets in the way, or what are the blockages? Then there are the flows themselves. What kind of information is passing through there? Uh, or for human networks, what kind of energy or what kind of values, what kind of beliefs are being transmitted through the networks? And then the third piece is a very interesting one, which is hard, a little bit less intuitive uh, for us. And that is that the whole influences the parts. A lot of us have been taught the opposite, (laughs) that that, it's the parts that that make up the whole. Uh, But actually, network science is revealing to us that there's influence in both directions, but that the influence from the whole to the parts is a lot stronger than we imagined and actually is one of the key components of how networks function. So let me take each one of those one by one. Connections. A lot of people know about six degrees of separation that uh, you can get connected to the President of the United States through six handshakes. If you pass a letter from one person to another, eventually you can get to anybody in the world through six connections. Uh, That's an amazing finding. And uh, what it tells us is that there's a lot of potential for connections to happen. And if if you look at most organizations, there's the so-called shortest pathway between different parts of the organization, different people in the organization. And a lot of times, some of those are much more than six. But it tells you that there's amazing ability to optimize how people are connected with each other inside of organizations. When you activate a new new connection, you access a new world. That's what's so exciting about it is that one of the most important things for any leader in an organization is to think about how it's connected and to sponsor connections inside that organization now there's a a lot of stuff that we could go into in terms of how people are connected and what that implies there's uh, all these centrality measures that are important it's important for people to start to understand these things because this is the way that our organizations actually work it's also important to understand that there is what is called power loss that means some people have a lot more connections And some other people have much fewer connections. And this is a normal distribution in a network. And this has also various implications for how networks function. For leaders that are in organizations understanding these concepts, is going to tell them a lot about why, for instance, a change initiative is maybe working or why it may not be working. We always talk about resistance to, to change, that may not be necessarily the case. It may just be that the, the information is not flowing in the right way, that the connections aren't there, that the people who need to know about the change are not being informed. And it's because nobody has an overview of how the organization is connected. So that's the first part, connections. And then we could really go very deep, uh, but to get, I hope you can get another feeling for just how critical that is. And, and amazingly, what a difference it can make by just introducing one new connection. I've come from the, the traditional consulting world. I, I used to work for Bain and for McKinsey and I did all this kind of strategic work. And it was always this amazing major plan that had to be pushed through the organization. And I've come to understand, and that's why I founded Ensemble Enabler, that if you hit the right point, if you make the right connections, You can create change and transformation without all this massive effort, but you've got to understand what the connections are.
1: It's one of the things that I I find interesting in in those kinds of conversations around uh, connections and resistance in particular is the focus of for resistance is on the people. And it's never to look underneath and say, what's driving the behavior. And that'll be the actual system that's been put in place. So it's just pushing back in a way. And yet, so there's a lot to be said for going deeper and for thinking, looking underneath the surface. And the other thing that I'm mindful of as you're speaking is my conversation with Sylvia. I'll put the link in the show notes. We talked about networks having a worldview. And when I took the course from OrgMapper in October of last year, of 22, I, I thought, oh my gosh, imagine What happens when networks have a worldview and they collide with other networks that have a different worldview? We're not very good at working at those intersections. I think we can do a whole lot more than we're currently doing.
0: And and, then there are actually some principles that are really important to follow. When we talk about flows, which is the second section, What's going through the networks? First, got to pay attention to how it's structured, because if you've got it structured incorrectly, there'll be things like gatekeepers that block information from flowing through. There'll be just silos that we all know about, but that are separated clusters because the connections aren't there. And that's all an impediment to an optimal organization. But then if we go to the second issue, which is flows, what is actually flowing through there? It's fascinating to understand that it's not just information. Everybody thinks about information and that's obviously a really important part of what's going through there. But there's a guy called Christakis who talks about the three degrees of influence. So there's a six degrees of separation and there's three degrees of influence. And that means that my emotions, my beliefs, my feelings can be transmitted through the network as well. And that's what humans do. And not only is it, transmitted to the person I'm directly in contact with, there's this three degrees of of influence means that I influence someone directly, but then they influence someone after that, and they influence someone after that. So I will have influence on people that I've potentially never met.
1: I think this really shines the light on why emotion runs through an organization faster than wildfire, and the other channels are just pedantic. They're (laughs) exceptionally slow.
0: Emotions is one of the most effective ways of communicating, actually. And that's why it evolved, probably, because without saying anything, you get a message. And uh, and it's a strong one. Um, there's evidence uh, that this is a very strong impetus of what flows through networks. Now, we want to have the best quality of flow possible. The other thing that we also know is that smaller teams are better. There's been a lot of research that's gone on. A good team has got really good relationships. That's key because good relationships means the transformation of information and emotion happens much easier and in a higher quality way. The larger the team is, the more connections you have to have. It grows exponentially. And that becomes almost intractable and almost dysfunctional. The studies are showing that Four to five people is really the optimal size team. Up to 10 is is okay. But after that, it becomes really difficult to maintain because the flows inside of this network are affected by the size of the team. Flows can have direction. Let's take a normal organization. Most of the flows go from the top of the organization to the bottom of the organization. There may be some that go from the bottom to the top, but it's much more difficult. And this directionality is also interesting because what you want is the multi-directional information exchange, uh, primarily, or as a asim- directionality, it usually leads to silos and into clusters that are not talking to each other. Uh, almost automatically. It's, it's just one of the direct, um, consequences of having that issue. So that how things are flowing, what is flowing is critical. And also this whole issue of gatekeepers, as we have in many modern organizations, people who have the ability to block information from flowing. And that, of course, has has tremendous consequences.
1: I just want to interject here because I'm I'm thinking about the the traditional belief system that runs an authority-based hierarchy in an organization is that the person with the most information has the most power so that you get the advantage in the organization by hoarding that power and blocking it and controlling it so that others can't advance it's a very high risk situation but yet how prevalent do you think it is today well for- oh, I, I think it's still
0: quite quite prevalent it's much harder to do nowadays because there's so many ways of, of going around it and that's one of the reasons why network science is showing why there's so much disruption because the traditional ways of doing things just cannot hold this idea of a hierarchical way of uh, and then maintaining information is just not going to happen. But how prevalent is it? There are several indicators. If you take a look at the lot of the large organizations, they're trying to innovate, right? They got a lot of resources. These corporations are are very wealthy, but they got to go to startups to get new ideas. Yeah, yeah. What does that tell you? <laughs> that, that tells you that the ideas that are inside their company, which they could have developed themselves. Cannot filter up. Yeah. They're not going up into the organization. They're being blocked or whatever. Startups which are sure, taking more risk are able to create new ideas. Right. But there's right. no reason why those ideas couldn't emanate from the corporation itself. An indicator that there is still a lot of information blockage happening inside of organizations.
1: Creativity is messy. And in an organization that's built for control and stability you want to get rid of the mess as quickly as possible, and yet without the mess, you don't survive. So it's a very, it's a very interesting dynamic. It's very
0: interesting, yeah.
1: Yeah, basically, the,
0: the typical organization of the 20th century, and still many of the ones today, which are carrying on that tradition, is that it's been focused completely on efficiency and productivity, to the almost exclusion of everything else. And that has a certain logic to it, and, and it certainly was probably the right thing to do a hundred years ago, but nowadays these companies are having to really think about how they're going to deal with this. Even the most efficiency-driven company has to be thinking about agile methods because otherwise it's just not, it's just not sufficient to work on efficiency. Fairly dull and boring industries might be able to get away with it, uh, but it's not a recipe for success in the future. The third piece is really important, and this is the one that people have the hardest time getting their heads around, is that the whole influences the parts. We know from network science that there's this whole issue of emergence. And it's spooky for those people who always want predictability and want to plan everything 10 years in advance and then follow the plan until they reach their goal. This is just fantasy. This is not the way the world works. Networks are telling us that this just doesn't work that way. What happens is that the, there's a period of instability, the edge of chaos, and you reach that threshold of instability, then all of a sudden a bifurcation point occurs and a completely different entity arises. This is really spooky for people who like five-year plans. It's just not something that they're, they're used to. But this is the way that real innovation happens. And it certainly is in, in keeping with many of the things we've seen over the years. Velcro happened because someone was walking through a forest and got on. <laughs> it doesn't happen in a planned way. What this means is that you need to continuously experiment. You constantly got to try new things. And you've got to push the organization to the edge. And uh, that makes a lot of traditional managers very uncomfortable. And as we also know, another example of the whole infinite of the parts is culture is unbelievably important in an organization. Yeah. And that has an implication for how people work. This is a really difficult one for most traditional managers and traditional management schools to absorb.
1: I'm going to extend it another step because one of my things in the work I do is contextual awareness. People say, oh, that's situational. No, no, situation is you and I talking. We've got a reason, a purpose for talking. Context is the screensaver. (laughs) What's going on behind? What are the pressures on people? All of the symptoms or signals of climate change, the eco-anxiety, how people mentally and emotionally recovered from the abrupt disruption during the pandemic. All of that is a part of the context we're in. What's going on in the bigger world has an impact. So I think that's the other dimension of what what you're saying. But then you've got that whole large question around who are we in this world today, in the world that's emerging? Who are we, really? What are we made of? And if we're just saying, oh, we're made of efficiency and productivity, it's a very low bar. You mentioned that network science can inform the future of organizations. How? What would that look like? where do we start? What are we looking for? I know there's always signals, cues, things that tell us that that the future is unfolding, it's emerging as we move forward. It's a much more sensory approach to visualizing the future and companies that are stuck in the next quarter, it's impossible for them to see it because their noses are on the ground. How do you balance that ground look with the forward looking wide angle approach? Any thoughts on that?
0: Sure. Let, let me just uh, give an example of emergence before I go into that topic. You know, we were talking theoretically about that in the previous section. I, I, this company, Asa Abloy, makes locks. That was the business they were in, physical metal locks and keys. Um, and then at the beginning of the tw- uh, 21st century, of course, keys moved into smart cards and key cards in hotels. And also you could store information on the card and there's potential to do more with it. Initially, it was just a card that had replaced the key, but they kept experimenting and they kept looking at ways of including people from the building security environment and system integrators that, that, that could use this information for uh, the building and for the dealing with a lot of the security issues inside of an entire building as opposed to just allowing a person to get into a room. What happened was, and which is really fascinating, is that they started to develop also a way of identifying the people that were getting these keys. And because they developed that ability, all of a sudden, they it opened up a completely new business for them, which was to be able to authenticate people who were looking to get driver's licenses and passports. And who would have thought that someone that was started in the key business would have moved into passports and driver's license. And That's what I mean when I talk about emergence. And that's the kind of change that no one can predict. But that's the thing that people need to be ready for, and it can only be achieved if they're willing to experiment and test new things out.
1: And willing to step into that reinvention process where you reflect on the current situation. You ask yourself, what if, a lot of what ifs, and then you you allow yourself to step forward. You give yourself permission to try something else. It, it, It applies individually as well as organizationally. I don't think there's any big distinction between those two. Because if you can reinvent your career, you can reinvent your way of seeing the world, you can reinvent your place in it organizations it's a parallel it's a fractal it's exactly the same thing different way of doing it of course but yeah
0: so the issue of what network science is telling us about the future of organizations the amazing thing is is that there are a lot of things out there already that are giving us a very strong indication of where things are going we start out with what i call the machine bureaucracy which is your typical corporation that, that focuses on efficiency and productivity. Now, those companies are starting to shift already and trying so called agile methods because of the pressure to change and, and do things differently. But those are little projects, maybe a little in software development here or a little project over there. They're what I would call more patches than real changes in the organization. And as a matter of fact, there's a whole theory that a lot of the, these companies subscribe to, which is called ambidextrous, they do the efficiency and productivity really well, and then they meddle and do a little bit of, of agile methods on the side to try to get some improvements. But that's really the beginning, because what we're starting to see is that things are really shifting from this hierarchical structure which is a network in and of itself by the way these machine bureaucracies as a special kind of network where most of the information flows from the top to the bottom and it's organized like a tree network where it keeps branching down into the organization what we're seeing is that already there's a completely different model in silicon valley silicon valley is the forerunner for a different way of doing things a lot of agile methods came from silicon valley where A lot more flexible. It's called semi structured. It doesn't have as as many layers, and the organization can shift and change depending on project. Priorities. For instance, when the iPhone came about, Steve Jobs brought everybody into to doing that and that was able to do that and really focus. And the other thing that's really interesting about the Silicon Valley is that there are so many partnerships that are part of what they do. Just think about all the app developers that are part of a network of, of organizations that provide services and products to a, a smartphone. If you take a look at almost any of these products, they require a ecosystem uh, organizations to provide. That model has been advanced a lot by people like Google, Apple, Microsoft, and a lot of traditional companies trying to imitate some of that through agile methods. I think that what we're really beginning to see um, is also a huge difference in the way that because of the, the lower cost of connection, the so-called platform is starting to become a major form of uh, interaction. A platform is always, they've been around for forever. If you think about it, a traditional newspaper was a platform where people that wanted things bought a newspaper and then they found classified ads and were able to buy things uh, or, or find the things that they wanted through those classified ads. So platforms have been around for a long time. This is not an actually new invention, but the digital platform is an amazing leap of magnitude forward beyond what traditional platforms could do. Uh, Because, of course, it's almost immediate, it's global, it doesn't cost anything. Most platforms, you just go on and and you're able to find immediately the people that uh, have what you need. So if you're thinking about Uber, uh, you need a ride, you find someone that's going to drive you somewhere. And the amazing thing is that these platforms don't need bosses. Think of Uber. You don't need a, a taxi dispatch system. The people come together, they they tell you what they need, and then the, the person providing the service comes and gets you, and no dispatch system. And so we're eliminating with these platforms a lot of the so-called management duties that we're requiring. And it's changing the economics of connections, making connection between people so much easier and that they can organize themselves the way that they want. And that's leading to self-organizing organizations, which is fascinating. We're starting to see several of them. The poster child for this kind of organization is the Netherlands organization for home care called the Burtzark, uh, Burtzark uh, was in a traditional bureaucratic or field where it was all centrally controlled. Nurses went to, to give home care and um, were selected by the management, not due to the relationship they had with patients, but to their um, availability, the proximity, and also knowledge because there are different types of of things that needed to be applied. But what you had was this rotating door of nurses, which didn't satisfy most patients. In 2006, they created this new organization where they said, no, we're gonna create teams of nurses, small, which is as we know from network principles is the way to create the best kind of flows inside of an organization. From a network point of view, it makes a lot of sense. 10 to 12 people, nurses, come together and they service a population of 10,000. And they do everything. They hire, they do all the accounting, they do everything else that's necessary to run the business, on top of taking care of patients. Uh, But of course, they have tremendous relationships and they do much better work. Uh, Audits have shown that these little small teams are are 40% more efficient in terms of, of, of costs. And get much better approval ratings from the customers themselves. This has been so successful that it's now 70% of the, the Dutch home care market. It's completely wiped out the competition. I could name several other examples. The point is that these self-organizing teams are small. They're connected all of these teams are connected in board through uh, a platform. And without the platform, this wouldn't work. And they learn from each other. And so it's all transparent. Transparency is incredibly important for networks. People know what's happening where and how the information is flowing. If a group is doing really well, they'll know about it. And you can go ask them, what are you doing? They learn from each other. Peer learning is a big uh, thing. This is beginning to really inform us where organizations are ultimately going. Burtzak, which is a fantastic example, people say, oh, that's home care. That's somehow, that's not quite really business, and that could never work in an industrial organization, right? Wrong. Uh, There's an amazing example, and I think this is still one of the very few examples, unfortunately, but there's others coming. Uh, It's a company with 100,000 employees that makes refrigerators. You can't get much more traditional than a company like this. And what have they done? They've created teams of 10 to 15 people, so-called micro enterprises, who are connected through what they call platforms. Platforms are things like shared services, so HR or legal or marketing, They have those platforms that they can correspond to, and also product. So one of the platforms may have to do with refrigerators. But otherwise, these micro enterprises with 10 to 15 people make all the decisions, who they hire, what they invest in, how they get compensated without any bosses and all self-organized. This company called Hire has been uh, growing at 22% per year for the last 20 years. Phenomenal. It's now become the largest white goods manufacturer in the world. They've shown that they can replicate their system. They bought GE Appliances in the United States and GE Appliances took over this way of doing it. They went from fourth in the market within only a six-year period. It took them two years to make the structural transition and now are number one in the market in the United States. And so that's, I think... Absolutely fascinating. Most companies are not ready for this. I do believe that this is telling us where it's going because these kinds of companies are successful because they follow network principles. It's the logic of the network.
1: The other thing that I find interesting about these new governance models that are growing from the ground up is that the national culture has an impact on things staying the way they are. But it doesn't dictate what will happen. Power is Chinese. Out of that crisis that Howard experienced, grew this company of self-managed teams. So reinvention is not in the hands of just the startup. It it can start anywhere. It just needs some bold leadership and a clear vision.
0: Yes, that's what Hire had. Someone who did the manager philosopher who really had the vision, his whole goal was zero distance to the customer. And this was the logical conclusion. This was the way of doing it and experimented over, over a long period of time in order to get to the structure. The fact that it's happened and that it's successful tells you a lot. And the interesting thing is that there are now some really major organizations that are looking at this and experimenting with it. For instance, Fujitsu, for instance, WASH Power Tools. These are not insignificant organizations. My guess is if we get a couple more successful organizations that are following this model, that it's going to begin to take root. And, and it makes complete sense from a network science perspective. These are completely interconnected groups. They have complete transparency and They can evolve and grow and adapt and sense to the marketplace the way that traditional organizations cannot. And so I think that there's a lot going forward in the fact that it has been done in in such a traditional industry even speaks more for it. Beyond higher, there's another development supported by software, which is the blockchain and decentralized autonomous organizations. We're working with uh, one of the top platform of uh, decentralized autonomous organizations Uh, Of course, it's still very early days at the moment, but uh, I'm I'm super excited about what this could potentially mean. It's also based on networks, and uh, uh, it's basically taking this whole decentralized system and creating the software platform to make that just normal. That's also very exciting, and that's happening
1: now. I want to learn more about that. I've attended a couple of things on DAOs and learned something from them, but I'd really like to look at it uh, more deeply. So thanks for putting that on the radar screen. There's a big psychological shift from relying on authority in a hierarchy to get things done and hoarding information and all of those things that that makes you advance in the system. In other words, it's very self-serving to a system and a perspective that is more customer oriented and on a wider basis, globally oriented, in other words, planetary health would fit into that scope of thinking or philosophy. What shifts do you leaders need to make? Any tips on how to make that jump and what to reflect on in oneself in moving through this obvious trajectory?
0: The interesting thing for me is that awareness is super critical the quality of awareness is is really important, but not just in yourself as a leader, you you need to grow that in the people in your organization. So-called social emotional competencies are going to be some of the most critical things going forward that people in the organization take the time to sense what's happening and become really good at that and understand that that's a very important skill because There isn't going to be a boss out there telling you what to do. What you have to figure out is what is the world asking of you? It's turning it around. What is the world asking for you to contribute? And those people who can really listen and really hear that will be able to understand and adapt to the environment, given the clues that the environment is giving. And that's the way life works. If you look at any biological ecosystem, what is happening in that environment, it's getting drier or getting colder or warmer or whatever, sends signals to all of the various life forms and they adapt and, and change and equipments to that. That's what um, these kinds of network organizations are going to have to engender. The other thing I think is really important is, I talked about the small teams, but I would like to then add something that we've really specialized in. You also need to have the large group gatherings because that's where serendipity occurs. That's where the interchange of ideas occurs. I like to think of it as breathing in and taking in the oxygen. We just finished having a, a large session with 170 liters and they got together for four hours. And in those four hours, we could identify all of the issues that are facing the company. They're not solving them, but they're identifying them. We create a greater awareness and consciousness through large gatherings. And that's a part of the process that's not something that most companies do today. Uh, But I think that it's going to be a critical skill for leaders in the future, convening large groups so that the system can see itself and understand what is going on.
1: Visibility being transparency equals trust. But it also is the podium for emergence. It's the podium for all these things that have been simmering underneath the surface to pop up in a more conscious and visible form. And
0: knowing how to steer collective intelligence. Human beings, our superpower is the fact that we can work together with each other. Alone, we can do very little. But together, we we can do tremendous amounts. Going beyond putting project teams together, using the conscious awareness of the large group to really spot what is going on. That is going to be critical going forward.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's a nice way to end the conversation today. Lots of disruption ahead for traditional organizations.
0: Oh, yes. Oh yes. I, I can't imagine in 20 to 30 years' time that many of these machine bureaucracies are still in place. There'll be the few dinosaurs, but uh, th- there's a new era that, that is ticking off, and it's only accelerating. I think basically what we're saying is that if you don't realize that's happening it's time to start paying attention yeah
1: Yeah. thank you very much thanks for being on the program and and sharing this with our listeners today my conversation with jeffrey in this program is a lovely segue to 2024 because i believe that in 2024 that leap of consciousness will take place i will certainly do my best to facilitate it i'll be launching some programs connecting self-awareness with emotional health with the basic skills and and navigational tools for raising consciousness, using uncertainty, using tough stuff, using conflict, and so forth. If you're interested in being informed, please click the link in the show notes and uh, sign up for more information there. The other part of the conversation with Jeffrey points to the value of paying attention to notice what is going on. I would offer that in addition to what we've talked about here, I hope that from this program you see much, much hope ahead for organizations moving away from forcing people to do things and manipulating people, flowing into engaging and participation and natural flow that can go with working together toward a large goal in such a way that everyone can contribute. Thank you for joining me. Follow me on LinkedIn and please offer a review and or share this podcast with other people who you feel would benefit. Looking forward to 2024 and I thank you for supporting this program.